0: to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Liberal Arts Banker shares his winding path from a small liberal arts college to VP at Goldman Sachs in investment banking. Learn why he started out in a trading role, why he jumped to a prop shop after a few years, his advice on trying to build a career as a trader, as well as why he pivoted to IB with an MBA. Enjoy. Liberal arts banker, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast.:
1: Hey, thanks for having me.:
0: so It'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio.
1: So uh, I've been doing finance for about 15 years now. Um, I started out of undergrad trading different kinds of derivatives, both in kind of a market-making capacity at first, uh, and then a proprietary capacity. Um, you know, for a couple of years after that. Uh, Phenomenal timing, you know, if you think back about 15 years ago to go into trading right before the uh, start of the global financial crisis. Um, And during that time, I I enjoyed trading, but I saw the writing on the wall in terms of, you know, where the trading job market was going, um, which, you know, obviously had a couple of tough years there through the late 2000s you know, single digits and into the early 2010s. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I decided it was a good time to go back to business school. Uh, Got my MBA, you know, top 20 MBA program, not, you know, one of the top three or four, but with a definite eye into going into banking.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, You know, banking, from my perspective at the time, gave such a wider skill set and a transferable skill set uh, and the corporate training to go get many different types of jobs. So everyone agrees that traders, you, know, you need to be smart, you need to be analytical, you need to be have a great attention to detail, um, you need to be good under pressure. But, you know, I didn't even know what EBITDA was at the time. Yeah, And it's hard to convince a corporate finance department or an M&A boutique or anyone to hire you, you know, with a trading background if you don't even know the basics of accounting or corporate finance or modeling or stuff like that. Fair. So... You know the idea of going back to business school is a to get into banking and then leverage that skill set that you learn both in business school and then with a couple of years of banking to get onto you know something you know that I found more interesting than the day- to day transaction activity of banking, which you know eventually will be hopefully uh, the buy side somewhere in a private markets type role or. Um, in corporate development at a firm that's doing a lot of, you know, M and A and you're really driving value, you know, for one of your clients most of the time. So that's been the, the goal. Um, I started out of MBA at a, you know, a middle market bank, I called middle tier, um, mostly because that firm was one of the only firms that was consistently hiring through the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, lots of European banks were cutting people. A lot of U.S. banks were cutting people or not even having, you know, intern, um, MBA interns or or full classes come in. So finding somewhere that was stable was very important. And finding somewhere that had a good financial institutions group was very important because I wanted to leverage the kind of four years I had on a trading desk and understanding that whole ecosystem into my banking career. So that, that four years I spent trading or five years I spent trading wouldn't completely go to waste because I would go cover financial institutions clients. And I would have an immediate leg up on other associates or other, you know, analysts or whoever else in the group who had never worked, you know, in the trading uh, or markets ecosystem. So I started, at a, like I said, a middle market bank, was there for about two years. Um, quickly realized that the, the deal flow there, although I got to learn a lot about different areas of FIG, covering especially finance and insurance and asset management, along with, you know, capital markets focused fintech. The group did like one lead M&A deal in the two years I was there. And in my opinion, the things that make you valuable as a banker, both as a junior banker and then increasingly as a senior banker, mm-hmm. um, lead deal experience, your connection and network with your clients and other you know intermediaries, lawyers, accountants, um, other bankers in the market, um, and then like your network in terms of, you know, are you going to be able to go and eventually be a coverage banker and who do you know and how well, how comfortable are they with you? and I just didn't see myself getting that level experience at the first bank uh, where I was. So uh, I had an opportunity to lateral a retained recruiter for a large European bank um, found my resume on LinkedIn and said, Hey, do you want to come in and work for one of the premier fintech bankers on the street? And I had actually been on a bunch of deals where this banker had been leading the deal and we were fourth or fifth bank down the the list um, and thought, listen, if I'm going to stay in banking and my ultimate goal is to get a really good buy side job or a really good corp dev job, I have a much better shot at doing it from this European platform where we're going to, I'm going to get more lead deal experience, more, you know, consistent with the bulge bracket experience, not a middle market experience. So, you know, it might be painful for a year, like switching is not free, but fine, let's go do it. Yep. Um, and that really played out, you know, the, the level, um, the positioning of that bank on deals was far, you know, beyond where we were at the middle market bank. Mm-hmm. Um, the pace and intensity of everything picked up, and um, that experience was great. Uh, I had an opportunity to be the analyst staff for a while. I was there for a while, which is another good experience. You know, kind of see the inner Top workings experience. of a group. <laughs> Every, everyone's always mad at you. You know, the junior yeah. people are mad at you because they don't feel like they're getting good projects or they're overworked. Yeah. The senior people are mad at you because they feel like they're getting short, you know, short shift on, yeah, resources or I'm not getting the best people or right. this took too long. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, it was a good experience, but I never want to do it again. <laughs> um, and 18 months was too long. So, but yeah, again, you get to see how the, you know, how the sausage gets made at the group level, how they think about staffing, how they think about staffing versus revenues and stuff like that, Got it. Uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and it gets you more visibility with the group heads, which is, you know, never a bad thing as long as you don't uh, you know, stub your toe or anything. <laughs> um, so, you know, spent three or four years at the European Bank, uh, got promoted to VP, was the staffer for a while, kind of pivoted my focus from spending most of my time in fintech for the first year or so I was there to spending most of my time covering asset management clients, okay. uh, mainly because uh, there was more headroom on the asset management side of the floor um and i worked really well with the the uh md on the asset management side and we got along pretty well so that really kind of increased the trajectory of my career and you know i could have stayed at that firm and gotten promoted to director and possibly even md early and you know you know the world was my oyster there put it that way but similar to what happened the first time around uh, a recruiter from um my current employer goldman uh hit me up and said hey Uh, you know, we're looking to reform an asset management coverage team, we have a new MD who's going to do this. um, And we need a new, you know, a a whole new kind of junior apparatus beneath him. Uh, And we need people with asset management experience. So, uh, you know, I came over to Goldman and for the same reasons, really, you know, again, up tiering both the brand up tiering my experience in terms of leading deals, in terms of being a point person in front of you know clients, whether it's CEOs or people running private equity funds or hedge funds, yep. uh, and given the area I cover asset management, you know there's so much interconnectivity between the large bulge brackets in the u s especially and asset management clients that if you're if you're covering them, it, like it's almost impossible to cover from a middle market perspective because yeah. you know every you know everybody who runs a private equity firm or hedge fund. Uh, 75% of them are alums of Goldman or JP Morgan or somewhere like that, or they have affinity for the firm for one reason or another, or they're big clients of the firm in securities division or whatever. So that's how you kind of get your hooks in everybody and make sure that you, uh, you're, you're having the right level of dialogue with the different clients across, you know, broad sphere of asset management. Um, so yeah, it's been about three ish years, um, at Goldman as a senior VP, Goldman doesn't have directors. Um, so it's been a good That's experience awesome. and obviously a couple different stops along the way but
0: quite a ride um, yeah. So let's go all the way back to uh, your liberal arts college i went to liberal arts college you graduated probably knowing next to nothing uh well you obviously didn't know ebitda then but tell me about how how in the world did you end up at a uh as a trader yeah
1: so it's interesting um I had no idea what, I knew I wanted to be in finance, but I had no idea what the different job functions, the different types of firms, the different types of roles that were available to those firms were because resources like Wall Street Oasis were not really in existence or prevalent back then, you know. Yeah, we things started were done, in
0: 2006, your senior year we started.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> things were done way more word of mouth. Yeah. And, you know, I went to a, a very highly ranked liberal arts school, but finance wasn't one of the big career paths that people generally chose out of high school. Mm-hmm. People tended to go to grad school more or, you know, go to law school, um, or go right into different types of professions, but not finance. There was usually like a couple people a year tops.
2: Right.
1: So it was more networking amongst alumni networking amongst my personal network. Um, and just seeing what the few people I knew who were doing in finance, you know, who are older than me at school. Um, to get a little bit of a flavor, what the different roles were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it did turns out, did you know out... what
0: like investment banking was your junior year? Did you know what like I, trading I, was? And
1: I had like a, a decent idea, but I yeah. definitely didn't know. You know, the, I didn't have the big picture, right? Which I feel like you can easily get the big picture reading, reading the forums, reading the guides that are out there. Now you
0: can, yeah. Now you, now can. you
1: can, but yeah. then it just wasn't available. I knew what like the analyst or the you know the junior trader role how it was different. And really I had two offers, I had a banking offer and a trading offer. And the banking offer was you wear suits every day and you work really long hours and a lot of times you don't have any control over your schedule. And the trading offer was you wear a polo shirt and flip flops and you work market ish hours, you know, plus or minus a couple hours before the market and after the market. Um, we both, it. we're both
0: and, offers in New York.
1: Uh both offers were uh in the Mid Atlantic, I'll say. Not in
0: Yeah, okay, fair. Yeah. So you you basically had a chance. You could have gone banking right out of school. You chose yeah. the, the trading route. Um besides the long hours and the suit suits to work. Anything else that kinda of pushed you to the trade? So Just,
1: I was I was an economics major. My yeah. favorite sub part of economics was game theory. Hmm. And I've always been uh interesting in gambling, interesting in playing poker. You know, that was like the poker craze back, like high school. You good player, you good no
0: limit player. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, know, I've been known to throw the chips around a little bit. Nice. Um, and that was, you know, core to. Um, yeah, it's just so similar to trading when you get when you really boil down to it. It's both gambling. How good at poker, poker did you get?
0: Did you study? Like, I, I mean, I ended up studying, started studying. I didn't go down to like the professional route, but I was, I was. I would play a lot. Oh, I was,
1: I was very well studied. That was back when you could play online for money. Yeah. And, and do well. know, I paid for a lot of things in college with, with poker money. How much do you think you made uh, like
0: 20,000, 50,000 more?
1: Nah, uh, probably a little less than 20. Less, okay. Um, right. but, uh, You know, and I also enjoyed it. Uh, Obviously, poker got a lot harder after everyone figured out how to play. Oh yeah, (laughs) oh yeah. In the the years after that, but um, it was fun while it lasted. Uh, But trading and poker—they were so similar, right? They're both about making decisions in situations of incomplete information, um, and learning tendencies, and you know, being comfortable with risk uh, and making probabilistic bets, even though you're not going to win every time. But being comfortable continuing to make those, you know, if you say, I'm going to bet you a hundred dollars, uh, on a coin flip, but I'll pay you $55 uh, every time you're right. And I'll take 45 every time you're wrong. You could lose 20 in a row and I'll, you know, you still got to take that bet every, you know, every single time. And some people can get their heads around that. And some people can't. So Um, you
0: you never went on tilt is what you're trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) That's the,
1: that's, that's not true uh obviously not true and it's funny because you think of traders like being like the ultimate like just difference engines like you're just making these probabilistic bets over and over but they were even worse than professional gamblers i know yeah
2: Uh,
1: i mean i worked at one trading firm where the the guy who ran the firm like the other partners in the firm had to close him out because he just kept doubling down on this Mm. one bet that kept going against him for like 16 months in a row or something Mm -hmm, and it it almost you know got to the point where the the firm kind of sank Uh, and they had to they had to close them out um but you know it's hard to imagine somebody you know betting red and roulette would stay for that long (laughs) or something (laughs) like that and keep doubling their bet until they win
0: so you you kind of choose the the trading shop you um when you first start what is what is it like i mean obviously did they have like any sort of training at all i mean it's oh yeah place so did you feel like you got any sort of knowledge from that training or was it basically 95% of the job and did somebody take you into the was, thing? Uh, those first few months?
1: Yeah. So it started off with, you know, a couple weeks of training and fundamentals of, it was, you know, their primary um, asset classes options. So a couple weeks of options, fundamentals, market fundamentals, they give you a little bit of like, here's how it works on different desks. Were you training as an undergrad? Uh, no, not really. No, no? okay. Um, and so they gave you—I think it was like five weeks—and that how, was. How, included. Did even,
0: how did you even get this job? I mean, coming from a liberal arts background, do you, do you have people, yeah, was, family, friends, or anything? yeah? So Any they,
1: industry? so this this uh, firm, going back a ways, had always recruited, uh, and my college was only about twenty miles from the firm. Oh, okay, so they always had recruited regionally. Um, and their big thing has always been that they don't care what your background is. They could care less if you've went to college. Um, if you can get through the interviews and answer all the probability questions and you get to the desk and you do a good job and you get to your you know, we had competitive mock training, trading sessions every week amongst the like the the junior traders, and you'd be fighting, and you know they'd keep track of how much money you or everyone was up or down. Sometimes mm-hmm. we would play cards and have training people. Like, tell, me about, have the tell me
0: about those competitions. What what type of was it options mostly? You were just sure trading, yeah, options. Yeah, right? so they would
1: set up an options board. You yeah. know, open up some markets with bids and offers for different strikes, and you have to just kind of do math in your head. And they say, hey, I'm going to bid six dollars and 50 cents for these calls what does that pl- imply in these puts over here or what does that imply in the risk reversal or the the call spread and, and okay if i'm bidding 650 for these do you want to sell these other ones at seven bucks like you know that kind of stuff
0: and did you um, so did that take yeah. you a while to get up to speed or just because of the post- oh yeah natural yeah it still took you a while like when it, did you feel it takes
1: a while to get the you know everything in options is you're looking at um, you know normal distributions of stock returns and you're looking at different distributions of how things are usually priced across different. Um, strikes and different um, you know, puts calls and all, everything in between all the different combinations. So learning all of those took a while to learn all those relationships between the different combination, different combinations of options trade and, and what people are betting on. Like, you know, if somebody's buying a straddle, it's a lot different than if somebody's trading, you know, a call spread, right? So right. what are they betting on in a call spread? What are they betting on in a straddle? Uh, it takes a while to learn all that, but once you kind of get all that down and then you can do the math in your head pretty quickly, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the same. You, once you know all that, then you can get away from trying to just like really just like memorize what someone's doing you know, based on the different trades they're doing and really see the board and see like, Oh, someone's bidding up, you know, at the money vol or someone's making a calendar bet you're rolling their vol exposure or mm-hmm. this is just a simple you know this is basically stock like trading a combo or trading a, you know a tight risk reversal or something like that so right. once you can get through the fundamentals which takes you know months usually you know, it, you know at, at the short end of month at the long end people sometimes never get it yeah then you can start to actually see um, you know, see the, the second, you know, level of what's going on the board and then make your decisions based on that. And that's what you're supposed any, to be
0: doing. Any tips on how to speed up that progression for people who can't eventually get it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, trading, as... Would trading
0: on your own help at all or is it better to do it in that training kind of mock uh, mock framework?
1: I mean, they learn? I, would, I wouldn't advise anyone to take their money and go jump in to start trading like, you Conference. know, the iron butterfly two months out and some in tesla you know, right?
0: oh gosh too um, so many would people say, shorting tesla yeah, exactly. thinking being trying to be uh, heroes
1: yeah exactly i would say like there are places and the, you know the names of them are escaping me where you can open a paper money account yeah right And you can learn, you know, learn the Yeah, they could just Google
0: paper money or mock. mock, Yeah, like
1: open one of those, open one that has good options functionality, Mm -hmm. and then learn the Greeks, learn the fundamentals of options and understand all that at a really, really, you know, uh, core level. Mm -hmm. And then just trade some paper money stuff and see, you know, see how it goes and learn what your different risks are, right? Like, Like I said, trading, somebody say, oh, all you're doing is buying a put in a call but trading an out-of-the-money straddle is different than trading a front-month, you know, at-the-money straddle versus Mm -hmm. two months out, and you can do straddle swaps, you can do risk reversals, you can do, like, big, you know, wide box trade. Like, there's all, there's a thousand different combinations of different options trades you can do, and understanding what your actual risks are and what you're betting on in all of those Mm -hmm. is important, and how you would hedge them. So you weren't
0: asked asked any of that in your interview. It's, I assume, coming from... No, 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 no. no. (laughs) The, The interview was, like, They want to know if you're smart.
1: Yeah, it's poker questions, you know, probabilities. Uh, There was like a Bayes theory question. There was, um, you know, an interesting one where there's something that's completely unknowable to me. I think the interviewer asked me what uh, I was supposed to figure out how old he was um, and provide a 95% confidence interval for how old he was. Um, By asking him questions that had nothing to do with what year he graduated, or or you know stuff where you could really try to back into someone's age. Mm. So I asked a bunch of questions like, do you have kids? Did you go to graduate school? Uh, you can't ask how old his kids are, but like, you know, what kind of cars do you have? It turns out his wife had a minivan. Does there, does there a TV in the minivan? So I figured he had young kids. He went mm. to grad school. I knew he was a senior person at the firm, so I kind of backed into something. So my confidence interval, or no, he actually asked for a point a point guess on this one. So I said, okay, I think you're thirty five. And this was like a five, you know, seven minute back and forth. Yeah. And then he, um, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to offer you a bet. Uh, You know, if you're within one year on either side, then I'll pay you $10. But for every year you're off, if you don't, if I'm not 34, 35 or 36 for every year you're off, right. You pay me $20. Mm. And I thought about it, you know, and it, it turned, I mean, the point of it is both to see, you know, how I was trying to get information out of him. Yeah. And then to see if I could understand that he's supposed to be a rational actor. He's not going to offer me that bet unless he knows he's going to make money because he knows how old he is. Right. That was the entire point of the exercise,
0: <laughs> um, which is very sneaky. right? Very sneaky. <laughs> but that's yeah. what
1: they're looking for. They're looking for people who understand like, listen, he knows something I don't know. I'm assuming he's rational. He's not going to do something irrational in terms of, you know, something that's going to probabilistically lose him money. Right. So if he was 39,
0: he was like, yeah, let's do this.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It turned out he was like 32 and I would have lost money had I actually taken the bet. Yeah.
0: Got it. So, okay. So you're, you're at the first shop kind of more as a flow trader, you mentioned, but then you kind of ended up jumping to a place that was more prop.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. So so tell me about
0: that transition, why you made that transition and what the thought process was and then what, what it was like day to day, the differences between the two.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, really it was a market making firm the first place. So I was an assistant uh, on one of the larger desks there, mm-hmm. and my, my job you know, from the beginning was to book trades, make sure our risk and P&L were updated, um, you know, reconcile trades at the end of the day, reconcile everything again in the morning, and you know, really just execute trades when they came in, meaning posting them to the exchange, posting them. Uh, with our brokers on the floor
0: on the options exchange. So after after six months a year, you're pretty bored because you you now you're in yeah, your you're in your pattern of just execution. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's hectic, and you know some of the senior people can be difficult. Uh, and there's like no upside because you're you're never going to do anything great where you're going to make anybody any money. Yeah. But you can definitely screw things up where you're going to cost people a lot of money, and that that happened. You know, I had a couple of small ones. Other people had a couple of large ones, and you know it's it's stressful. Um, but you know, as things went on past that first six months, you know, it became interesting. I got to execute more of my own trades. I got to make my own markets on smaller stuff and yeah. actually got some, some de- decision-making capacity. And I really like that, but it's still market-making, right? You're still judged on an overall portfolio, which I was a very small contributor to 5% of the trades of our whole book or whatever. Right. Cause right. like no, the, the head trader on my desk wasn't going to have me, you know, put, you know, make a decision on anything important that was going to really move the P and L obviously.
0: So like when um, you were, when you were making markets, was it, you said it was a small kind of sub market, like where you would be setting the price, you'd be setting the spreads for, for Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we had automated quotes and we had people on the floor doing their own quotes. So I would make sure that our quotes are working right and everything. But if our, let's say one of our sales traders called us and said, Hey, hedge fund XYZ wants to do, you know, 300 of these options Mm -hmm. right and the head trader is busy because he's trying to trade a thousand lot somewhere else, right? Right, and the and it's a it's a pretty liquid position and he only needs to do 300. I'm like, okay, fine Like I'll put that up for him and I'll pick something You know around the current screen bid offer and then I'll hedge it a little bit with the underlying shares after we execute the trade but that's the kind of stuff you know, where again, you can screw it up and really cost yourself money, but you're not going to make a career off of doing that, like on a drinking (laughs) desk. Got it. So that's uh, helpful
0: just to hear that, like example, that's, that's to give the listeners kind of a a viewpoint in. Yeah. So on the
1: prop side, uh, it was a slightly different asset class. This firm had a long track record of, you know, having 50 plus traders who the firm as a whole was making money every week for like seven or eight years. So they had, they really had some alpha on the trading side, which, you know, is hard to find. Um, So I like that aspect of it. And the aspect of like, I was going into a small, the firm was based elsewhere. I was going to be working right outside of New York city in a satellite office. And it was a small group of traders, very informal. Everybody's got their own book. And you know, they say, here's your money. And they give you some guidance from a senior trader, like mentor who you kind now, of work for. Before, before, yeah,
0: yeah. It seems like you took some time off in between. Was this because you just like. Uh, just I had a or?
1: I had a severance agreement.
0: Severance, okay. So you had to wait yeah. for a little while. Okay, so can you tell me when you started there, Do they start you off with like a small book? Do you mind telling me what it, what it is? Like, yeah, like,
1: so they had one like specific trade. Things yeah so we traded something that was very highly leverageable uh, okay. um, on the fixed income side, so not yeah. on the option side, but this was more fixed income and rates. yep um, so you know you can get not infinite leverage but you know, a Great. lot of leverage. so they actually didn't need a lot of capital to do a significant amount of trading, especially if you planned on trying to go home every night flat, right so you weren't carrying Paris. position you know small right. even small positions could be expensive overnight. So it was inter, uh, it was inter, it
0: was daily kind of flow, not flow trading. How do you call, what do you call that? Uh, quick high frequency trading, but not like yeah, I mean, not I'd super say, high frequency. So like
1: No, like no, that. not, yeah, yeah it wasn't super high frequency. I'd say our average hold period was like an hour and a half. Okay, got it. Right, We would see, it would be kind of hedged in terms of the market goes up, market goes down. We think we're hedged to that but mm-hmm. we were trading little variations and trading in pairs mostly. So it was a, a little bit of pairs trading across the rates universe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were trying to just find those little discrepancies where one instrument has gone up, but the others haven't caught up. So we'll sell the one that's gone up and buy the other so, ones. And, and hopefully that corrects. Yeah. So
0: a lot of data scientists and stuff like that, or how did you how are a lot? Definitely
1: a lot of da- you know, the firm started with a couple mm-hmm. You know, very quantitative PhD type people there running analysis for us and making mm-hmm. sure our risk models were up to date and, and trying to find new pairs for us to trade that they thought would work out. But it was still, you know, pure clicking.
0: But then, what, how do you think they were so successful for so long then doing that? I mean, was it just because they, uh, were, in market, a, they were in a small enough market where they could kind of get a little well, edge?
1: It was a very large market, um, yeah. but it was bifurcated among. Abund- amongst a bunch of different trading platforms. And the guy who started the firm created the first technology solution to kind of aggregate trading and risk across these different platforms where you had to trade different instruments on, um, yeah, I'll just tell you, it Got was, it. It was treasury, treasury bonds and futures, right? So you used to trade treasury bonds on eSpeed and BrokerTech, which it. were broker owned systems. The treasury futures used to trade on the SIBO, which is bought by CME. Um so kind of
0: He was able to somehow attach some sort of Yeah, attaching system
1: all of the yeah, getting get a system it where you could trade all those at once and trade as one trade saying like, Hey, I wanna buy the five year bond and sell the five year futures and that's one trade that's gonna execute at the same time across four different markets, maybe. Got it. Like that was a pretty uh big deal.
0: That was a big deal. Yeah,
1: pretty impactful solution at the time.
0: Very cool. Um, Got it.
1: But but uh, you know, there's a second half to this story. Which yeah. So to. so
0: what happened? Why not stay there yeah. right off into the sunset with your well, million? That's
1: oh, <laughs> believe me, a lot a lot of people did uh, who had mm-hmm. been there for years before that. But yeah, um, what happened was you know people saw firms like this one making a lot of money on this trade, and they had better technology. And I know for a fact that a couple high frequency Chicago-based firms came into our exact trade and just ate the firm's lunch. So I was at, with the same small group of traders. We left the original firm. We started our own thing for a little bit, and then our own thing kind of not blew up. It just didn't take off the way we wanted it to. And mm-hmm. the two guys who put up most of the money um, had a life change, and they needed to you know get some of their money out. Mm-hmm. So we ended up joining a larger Chicago trading firm. You know, again. Got so it. this little group of five guys kind of went from this original firm to our own thing to another larger firm, but. By that time, I had, the writing was on the wall that this wasn't going to work out the way I kind of wanted it to at the time. Mm-hmm. And I could have gotten other trading jobs, but I just didn't like where it was leading me. Like I was interviewing for jobs at you know, large uh, execution trader at a large, uh, well-known hedge fund, for example. Yep. And they're like, hey, we love your resume. You'd be perfect for this. But um, there's a guy who has five more years of experience than you from Goldman. Who's willing to work in the same position for the same salary? Like, and we have to hire like you know, just it's is logical. We have to hire him instead of you. And that happened like two or three times. And I'm like, all right, this is not good. Like, I gotta go. Well, this was off.
0: this was right after the financial crisis, too. So. I mean, this was right in
1: the middle. This was 2009, middle. yeah, Nine ten. yeah. So it's like, yeah,
0: there's just the street was flooded with incredible talent.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, and yeah. people a lot of people wrote it out uh, and stayed in trading, or mm-hmm. or wrote it out and found different areas, whether it was you know servicing trading or um, you know, doing other kind of things around the trading ecosystem at like exchange or elsewhere. Yeah. But um, I mean, let's put it this way: I worked with probably 200 different, like, youngish traders—call mm-hmm. it under 30-year-old traders—you yep. know, across four or five years. And I think like less than 10 of them are still trading now.
0: Wow, that's crazy. So, a lot of so, attrition too. <laughs> before, yeah. So before we jump into kind of your business school thing. It, any comments on how things have moved, kind of ten years later now, in terms of just gotten more data, comp sci heavy, obviously more automated. Yeah. Data. Tell me a little bit so, about your thoughts in terms of your perspective. I know you haven't been in it for
1: almost. Yeah, a so, yeah, I still cover like that ecosystem yeah. a little bit and still pay attention to what's going on. Um, it's just a tough market for jobs there. Uh, I mean, the largest you know employers of traders and sales in sales and trading are obviously still the banks but I'd say the vast majority of people who go into sales and trading in a bank, you end up more in a salesy type role than a, you know, real proprietary decision maker as a trader type role. And it's not, but I'm not saying it never happens, but like they pick a very select few of every class to say, listen, if we're going to have some prop, some people with proprietary capacity, like, you know, after training or as people start on the desk, those people get identified and kind of siphoned off into into more what I would consider real, like market making or flow trading type roles, most of the people end up, you know, in a more salesy type role where you're covering asset management clients. You know, coming you have to understand the markets. You may have some proprietary capacity to trade against your clients or, or execute things um, on on a um, on an agency basis, but you know, it's not the same to me. There are two kind of different skill sets. One's yeah, relationship driven and one's uh, more like, you know, a lot of the best traders, they lock them in a room. They don't even let them talk to clients because one, they don't let the clients pick in their brain. And two, they tend to be prickly people whose time is best spent, you know, um, focusing on the markets and their screens. Yep. So right. I'd say from my perspective, proprietary trading, you know, at a bank is tough. Um, what there about are he- about a
0: hedge pre- fund? Like what about hedge yeah, funds? Yeah. Hedge
1: funds. So there's lots of great, um, you know, independent trading firms. Uh, you know, just to rattle off a few off the top of my head that that hire a lot of people under out of undergrad. Now, a lot of these firms tend to now focus on people who have like intensely quantitative backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can still talk a few of them into you know an interview, and if you do well in the interview, I'm sure you can get in there. If mm-hmm. you just prove prove some analytical value to them, whether it's in gambling or otherwise. So, firms like Peak Six. Wolverine, Susquehanna, um, Jane Street, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less so, Jane Street. Who um, are some uh, IMC, Optiver uh, on the European yeah. side? A lot in Chicago. Yeah, a lot in Chicago, yeah. yeah. There, a lot of them were, you know, a lot of options firms and futures floor traders out of the Chicago. Are those teams ecosystem. growing
0: at all at those prop shops? Or are they staying the same size and kind of there's some attrition?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. My guess is they're staying the same size. Yeah, the industry's been consolidating. Um, you know what? What you've seen, for example, on the equity side over the past ten years with Virtu, kind okay. of has just hoovered up every one of their you know main competitors almost. Yeah, um, that's going to continue happening across other asset classes, whether it's FX or futures or options, especially. I mean, options and you know index and ETFs options especially have lent them has lent itself to growing these huge firms that trade everything because you're trading underlying, especially ETF and index, right? You're trading the futures, the cash baskets of stocks. You're trading multiple different classes of futures. You're trading options on the futures. You're trading options on the cash. You're trading all the ETFs and there's, you know, for the S and P 500, there's probably, I don't know, a hundred plus ETFs that are highly correlated to the S and P 500. If not directly linked to that index.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Um, so it just creates these huge behemoths of firms that are good at all of this stuff. Yeah. So I would expect that it's going to continue consolidating those firms, maybe growing their classes, but when you think about, they're going to acquire three other firms that do similar things that used to hire 10 people a year, like it's all going to continue to get hoovered up by the largest, most successful firms. Fair. Um, Fair. so I listen. I, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, but
0: you saw the writing wall.
1: I saw the writing on the wall. What, what was that?
0: TV. What was that kind of that day or that that break where it was like uh, maybe you were like, I just gotta go to business school <laughs> or I yeah. need to go to banking. Like in why banking?
1: <laughs> you know, because I had been like I said, I had been interviewing around and not this just two
0: thousand nine, two thousand ten, It two thousand nine, two thousand ten. It's
1: a bad and time. Try- it was awful time. And yeah. I was trying to find, you know, even I was open to leaving trading, but I just kept running into the same headwinds of like, oh. How are you gonna convince me you're not going to jump right back to trading once the the job market gets better or mm. great like we agree that you're analytical and and you can answer all these great logic questions and whatever but like I don't care about that I need somebody who's good at PowerPoint who can put together a sim right like and you know it they, they both are skill sets it just happened that I had one at the time and I didn't have a great one you know I was good in excel but like I said, I didn't know anything about accounting or corporate finance. It's interesting
0: that they don't really care about raw intellectual horsepower. They care about just how hard for, you're willing to draw. The, yeah, for,
1: yeah, for experienced hires, yeah, that was at the time. I mean, okay. I was competing for a lot of roles that weren't necessarily in banking, but they were you know similar skill sets. And they're like, why am I going to hire this guy who is a trader and take he'll take three months for me to teach him everything when I can just hire an analyst from any investment bank who's been doing this for the last two years?
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, Uh, It's a hundred percent true. Now that I've worked with lots of analysts. Um, (laughs) So tell me a little bit about just the, that decision, the year, what is like Like when you made the MBA? you know, you said top 20, it was wasn't the top, top business school. Why go there then? Why not? You know, it was a timing
1: thing. It was really, it was the fall. It was like late in the fall. And I was, you know, I, when we started our own shop, like we all had to put up some money Mm -hmm. and then you know, I put up, I was the most junior guy and I didn't have the money and I didn't want to put up, I had savings, but I didn't want to put up my money and like just dive into this further at the moment. So I basically said, listen, I'm not going to take a salary, but like I'll fill up my partner capital first and then like I'll go and I'll start paying myself after that with my cut of profits. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the market got so volatile in the summer and fall of 2009. If you think about, especially the treasury market, like we were in the heart of quantitative easing, like, you know, things were only going one way and in, in kind of uncorrelated fashion. Sometimes you can imagine when the federal reserve is in buying treasury bonds, things tend to go wild. Yeah. Um, I mean, risk, all risk parameters that we had got blown out. And like, it was just a completely unsure footing in the partners just cut everyone else's risk besides themselves to a point where like it was uneconomic for me to show up every day. Mm. Like I, they cut my risk so much that I couldn't, I didn't have visibility into filling up my partner capital and being able to pay myself for any, like any time in the foreseeable future. Got it. And
0: what did that it mean? Just they cut your risk? Like you weren't allowed to put on anything. Yeah.
1: I wasn't allowed people. to have positions on of a size where I thought I was going to be able to make money over my right. nut, which my nut was, I had to make like, I don't know. It was like twelve, twelve thousand five hundred 12,500 bucks a month to cover our like tiny little office rent and yeah. connectivity and stuff. Yeah. Right. So if I had to cover my nut and then I owed, I had to come up with like 50 G's to fill up my partner piece.
2: Yep. And
1: I just thought like, this is going to take six months. I can't work for nothing for six months. Yeah. And so I was interviewing and finally, like, I just like capitulated and, I, you know, I had, tr- I always said like, there's no way I'm going to need an MBA. Like I, I, cause in training, like if you're good at it, you can go as far as the world it will the, take you. It was yeah. the
0: last option. No. It was, the,
1: it was really, you know, well, that's honest. Okay. Yeah. So, so I took, I took like two weeks to study for the GMATs and signed up for a GMAT. Like the only time I could get, yeah. uh, and I was in the New York area around the New York area. It was like right before the holidays, uh, was like a 6am slot. It was like an hour and a half away. So mm-hmm. I, like, got up at 3.30 a.m., drove in there, had breakfast, and, like, took the GMATs after studying for, like, a week and a half. Yeah. And I picked five schools. I applied to, you know, a couple really good ones, a couple middle tier, and one kind of safety. Mm-hmm. I was on some wait lists with the top, you know, the, the, it was two top five schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got on one wait list. Uh, I was on another wait list for the middle one. And then I got into the other middle one where i ended up going mm-hmm. and i didn't choose the schools you know willy-nilly or just on name recognition i i chose ones that i knew had good track records in banking recruiting yeah um especially you know with with uh firms in new york area which i wanted to be back in new york Got it. so you know i was thinking about i was weighing the out like do i want to wait and wait on this the top five one on the wait list and these were extremely competitive years for MBA. Yeah, uh, if you remember co- correctly, like if you look at, you know, everyone's like,
0: everyone's unemployed. everyone jumping. was running, yeah,
1: everyone was running for their, uh, you know, their two-year vacation of NBA, with mm-hmm. being a little bit uh, uh, flipping about it. But, um, so yeah, I was I was weighing like, do I want to wait this one out or should I just go? And if I waited it out and I didn't get in, like I would have probably retaken the GMAT to try to get a little bit higher score because I wasn't like completely happy with my score, and. I would have done the whole recruiting process, which, you know, I didn't realize then, but I realize now after going to MBA, like the recruiting process for MBA is just, do we think that it's like mimics a corporate recruiting process because they want to see if you're going to be good at getting a job eventually right after you get to the program
2: yeah. so it's
1: like have you done your research do you know why you want to come here have you talked to alums do you know the specific you know the differences um between the school versus our three biggest competitors mm-hmm. uh what what value we bring versus what you know what they are better at stuff like that and that's really just them screening for people that they think are going to do all the legwork and do a good job you know when they're looking for their job after they get to the program,
0: right? So their placement stats look good when they're done. Exactly. Okay. Um,
1: so I decided I didn't feel like waiting a year, uh, and I just okay. I said let's do it. Um, so I accepted the MBA uh, offer like in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, still traded for a couple more months and told my bosses that I was leaving. Um, and yeah, so I had a couple months off in the summer to kind of get ready, and obviously they give you like those like. MBA like pre prep courses where you actually take accounting and you take corporate yep. finance and stuff like that. So, um, That's
0: so I was ready bad. to go
1: by the, by the time I got there in July. And
0: did you, so did you take out some loans just to help finance? Oh, yeah. your your I, I, I took the whole,
1: the whole spiel.
0: <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and it, tur-
1: it turns out not getting paid for like almost a year can really put a dent in your finances.
0: Um, yes. Especially so if you're I, at an MBA.
1: <laughs> exactly. No, I meant, I didn't get, I almost, I got, I made like $15,000 total the year before I went. So That's tough. I was, yeah. Um, and,
0: um, and then you're, then you're at MBA for two years. Try then on. I was MBA
1: uh, for two years, you know, <laughs> obviously uh, enjoying myself uh, as well as studying. Um, so came out, came out of MBA uh, and I actually bought a condo in the worst month to ever buy a condo in the history of the United States, September of 2007. Oh, so. I was in a very interesting financial picture, which is another attractive where was thing the, about it. Oh you, Do you want
0: to share where the condo was or no? Uh,
1: it wasn't, it was, it was in the midland, in a city. No, it was a, it was a decent market. Not a so great one. Not as did Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Didn't, not didn't like make, not in Las Vegas. Vegas. Or yeah. No, no. <laughs> <Or not laughs> okay. I, I still have friends by the way, who are underwater on their houses they bought in Charlotte, like That's in 2008. Um, but uh, as an aside,
0: Okay. So you, um, so you, so you come out, you, well, I come out, I'm you, like, you're, you're already in and you know what you want. You're kind of interviewing yeah. right away doing the whole cocktail hours and, yeah. um, tell me a little bit about that whole process and was it surprising? <laughs> Did you feel like you had, you had a good shot all the way through? Was I was, summer, summer associate I was tough?
1: yeah, I was a little surprised that like, cause I had been trying to find a new job for over a year probably. Uh, and, I was like, oh, great. Now I'm going to be in this program and I'll get a really good footing and I'll get a little break from the job search. And like the first thing you do when you get there is get your resume ready, get your network ready. What do you want to do? What's your mission statement? What's your elevator pitch? Like that's like the first week. Yeah. So it's like right into recruiting and then you're right into, you know, I, I think I spent like a combined day on the Bolt bus and the Mega bus going to New York. Um like getting, you know, doing the networking events and coffee chats with alums who, yeah. and, you know, new associate, MBA associates who came out of my school and were at the different banks. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, it was just every one of those conversations that's trying to pick up something that you can use in a later conversation that you didn't know about the industry, that you didn't know about a firm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and then demonstrating some kind of value to them, like ask a good question, have an interesting thought, have something from your background that is germane to them in whatever industry they cover did you know, did
0: you know all this stuff before the NBA did the NBA help guide you or is it something the NBA
1: like- yeah the NBA they were good at preparing you for all yeah. this right and your your big your first yeah, a hierarchy of resources are available at most NBA programs. first is the second years because they just went through this last year yeah. and they are willing to help and they part of the value that they bring to their you know perspective full-time employers and most people sign up for full-time before they even like leave their summer right is to identify the good candidates for next year and make sure that everyone you know they're getting the, the best quality candidates in for their networking events and applying and stuff like that but i assume there's a so, lot of
0: kids targeting banking out of that's good at your school yeah yeah there were pretty competitive um, and like were you worried was. ever at some point like oh man i'm dropping all this money on this MBA, and the economy's still not humming yeah. and i could come out with nothing
1: I was a little worried. So I, I, um, considered like trying to go to a hedge fund. There was an alum at a hedge fund that we like mm-hmm. kind of clicked and he was like, uh, I'm not going to know if we're going to need any interns till like April. Yeah. And I'm, and I just, I thought about it and I'm like, I just can't do it. Like I need the paycheck I, and I came here to do banking. Like I wanted, like I yeah. want the skill set at least for the summer. We'll see if I hate it after the summer, I'll figure it out. But like, yeah. let me get like an offer. For the summer. Um,
0: Tell and, me how, and was, see, that, see how, how was. was that summer, not having any of that accounting, at least on the job or any of that financial. I mean,
1: it's, it was fine. It, you know, banking's mm-hmm. not rocket science, mm-hmm. right? Like you're not doing really highly quantitative stuff. It's just nuts and bolts of, yeah, you know, you're just learning the nuts and bolts of how banking works, which is its own little esoteric yep. you know, part of finance. Which the only way you can learn, you can take as many classes as you want, but the only way you can learn is to sit there as an analyst or a junior associate and really, you know, dig in, learn how to model, learn the different the differences in business models between clients in your coverage universe. Learn why you adjust someone's earnings for something, but you don't adjust someone's Else's earnings for something, and how that changes their multiples, or how it changes how you think about them. Like if one of them gets acquired in an M and A context and stuff like that. Yeah. And then how the whole how the whole process works too. How a pitch process works. So, you know, going to a client for a quick catch up where you're going to bring ten pages that are mostly off the shelf is a lot different than, you know, responding to an IPO or RFP that you're going to work on for three weeks and it's going to be turned 175 times. (laughs) Right. But like going into banking, you're like, Oh, one's a pitch. The other one's a pitch. They're like the same, but you know, could not be further from the truth. So learning all that stuff was interesting, but the nuts and bolts of it are, I don't know, pretty, pretty easy. And luckily one of my really good friends at business school had been a bulge bracket analyst, uh, you know, through the beginning of the crisis there, Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, he really kind of gave me the ropes of, you know, what the different job roles are, what you can expect your work-life balance balance to be, you know, what types of MDs, you know, there are between the execution side of things or more coverage or very senior people who are like the managing director of having lunch and never generated work for junior people. So it just, it was a good, like. A little bit of a cynical view, which you know also helps, but because um, he was he was going to business of school course. to leave banking. I was going to business school to get into banking. He's
0: like uh, but, the the jaded analyst after two years. Exactly,
1: exactly. Okay. Um, so no, the, the summer was fine. I got split between two industry groups that were not fake. So all mm-hmm. of that whole spiel I gave about going into something where I, like I had a little bit of operational knowledge uh, mm-hmm. was didn't really apply. Like I spent my summer in healthcare and something else that I knew okay. nothing about. Okay, um, but you know the learning experience isn't about the sector. the learning experience is you know, like how banking works,
0: the process, yep okay, process so, wise yeah so you're you're there, you it sounds like you get the full time offer right um at yeah. the end of the summer, um in terms of they they also pay you over the summer, which is nice, you need that paycheck yeah um, pretty
1: pretty well, yeah,
0: and then you know were the hours about seventy eighty hours a week or so,
1: I'd say on average, it was like. 80 and then I had a couple bad weeks that were a hundred plus, maybe two weeks were bad.
0: Okay. And so you still came out of that and you said, okay, I'm just going to go for this because you got the offer. Well,
1: one thing they do is they dangle like 50 grand in front of you that you can have like the next week. <laughs> 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 like if you sign. Okay. Signing bonus. Um, so, yeah. So I, I investigated lateraling, um, not lateraling, but going, uh, switching from my, from my okay. internship to full time. Yep. Um, but at the time, like these weren't big classes at a lot of banks, and everyone was accepting their offers because it was risky.
0: Know, at this the start. economy was still
1: in crisis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that quickly went by the wayside, and I, I pretty quickly took my uh, took my return offer. Fair,
0: okay. And then that, but first-
1: but I I did caveat that I needed to be in fig. Got it. Which you know they made a they made a concession on that.
0: Got it. Okay. And so you you basically had is that, was that? Uh, do you feel like that's a little bit uh, unique that you want to be in fit? Cause I've heard some people say they don't want to be. in fit, like I think, it makes
1: yeah, up. I think it is unique. Um, yeah. because people, especially analysts, I hear this from our analysts a lot. Like, Oh, we don't want to get pigeonholed, you know, and spend all of our time working in depots or insurance. And then like, I'm doing that for the rest of my life. Um, and you know, everyone thinks that working in depots or insurance hurts your buy side. Um, uh, higher ability. What's your thought? What's your thought on that? I think most banks realize that and they're going to make sure that you get a diverse experience where you're working with both companies that are balance sheet based, whether it's depots, insurance, specialty finance, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're working with some EBITDA companies, Yeah, right? Where you, okay. you're you actually doing, you know, a fig EBITDA at a, company. At a junior
0: level. What about exactly. yourself? What about yourself? Cause you did say something about side. What about you being in that group? Had you, had you was BuySide on the radar at all when you were coming out of business school? Yes.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, like I said, banking, I always viewed banking as a stepping stone. I, yeah. I didn't think it was going to be. But, but it hasn't been. You've almost, been <laughs> almost ten years. You're like <laughs> a
0: banker for life, right now at this stage. Uh, well, not quite. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Well uh, enough, but you've been there not, for yeah, you've been there for a good number of years. Um, yeah, but yeah, so, tell me a little bit about yeah, just the you do.
1: Was it you? You can get pigeonholed to fig specific things, mm-hmm. which is fine um, from my perspective because fig is a large part of lot of different investment funds, right? So the mega funds, like what percentage of Blackstone or Carlisle, I mean, Carlisle had their own dedicated fig fund. Yep. That just wrapped up uh, a couple of two years ago or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of dedicated fig buy side shops that do really well. Stone Point and Lightyear and Flowers. And you know, there's 10 other ones. Yep. Um, uh, Aqualine. So I thought there was enough of a buy side ecosystem where I was comfortable that, you know, that would be an alternative at some time in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, fig investing has only you know, exploded really since I've been a banker pretty yeah. much with one thing, all of the big alternative managers getting into insurance. Mm. Um, so Apollo with Athene being the first one then Blackstone's got their insurance operations. They bought a platform uh, FGL a couple of years ago, KKR just bought Global Atlantic two weeks ago. So now all of these big, you know powerhouse private equity firms need people who know how to invest in insurance assets as well, you know, to understand the insurance side of a balance sheet. So a guy I worked with actually, who was a managing director uh, at a prior firm, he spent most he covered alternative asset management with me a little bit, but he also spent a lot of time in insurance, and he ended up getting hired at one of these firms to help, you know both do some fig investing, some kind of corporate development for the house, but mm-hmm. do a lot of help us grow our, insur- our insurance, business. Wow.
0: Yeah. Like Through acquisition. Deal. Yeah. Um, so so you're there. Yeah. So you were there for a few years and you had that opportunity, like you said, to, to kind of um, go to, from the middle market to the bulge bracket um, and try to get more on some kind of uh, be the lead. Um, and the level of the GS yeah. is kind of improving. And so you, you did that after a few years, was there any sort of pay bump that went along with that? I, I mean, I assume you're getting standard associate pay.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: you didn't get promoted to VP till that, till that bulge bracket.
1: Promoted, yeah. Yeah. So admission. there was a small pay bump, mm-hmm. um, from the middle market. Uh, I mean, not on the salary side, Yeah. the salary was the same or I even took a little bit of a decrease Yep. actually, but the bonus was, you know not like 50% increase, but you know, probably like 20.
0: That matters. Um, so
1: yeah, good, yeah, it was a good, a good pay bump, but I also had to take stock. So at the middle market firm, I didn't have to take any stock. Got at it. the bulge bracket, I had to take stock. And unfortunately it's only exactly. gone one. It only went one direction while I was there.
0: And that was like a restric- restricted, restricted stock units. So you had to wait for them to best or they were. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Three so, year. Got it. So in yeah. terms, and did it, was it always rolling? So every year you'd get a lot, a big chunk of every it. Every
1: year you'd have to get a bunch of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I eventually switched to Goldman, you know, that's part of a package. When you switch and you have stock, they usually replace your stock. Yeah. They try to they make, make you whole.
0: whole. <laughs> they try to. Yeah. Great. So, you, so talk to me about kind of that final transition. You know, to me personally, looking at your background and you're saying, you know, potentially buy side, like, why not just stay where you are and get director or, or so, manager director?
1: So this was a little bit of a, a personal, I mean, I, it just happened to be the, the area I cover. I would look around and look at a bunch of my clients and they'd say, oh, you know, you, you work with people and you say, hey, that guy's a great guy and like he's got an awesome job, right? He's corp dev at, you know, a big public private equity firm or yeah. he's one of the guys at, you know, one of these platforms that's doing GP minority stakes like dial and Blackstone and Peterson, which I, I cover them now. I, I know them really well. Yeah. Uh, and like, Oh, that'd be a great, I would love to have a job like that. Or, you know, he just got hired out of the bank and now he's a VP at one of these big focused buyout firms, like, like your Aqualine or some point. And overwhelmingly when I would do that, the background of that person was they worked at Goldman like 80% of if If that, if I did that with 20 people, I swear like 15 or 16 of them worked at Goldman and it's probably a little bit of just, you know, luck on that end. Mm Um, because you know, I've met lots of people with great jobs who never, you know, who worked at lots of different types of banks or were consultants or did 50 different things. Right. Yeah. But it just so happened in the alternative asset management industry for these people who tended to be like my level or a little bit above, at the time, like a lot of them had this very similar seat where they left when they were either a VP or junior managing director at Goldman.
0: It's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't um,
1: know. So I figured, listen, if I'm gonna you know really try to do it and put myself in the best position to get that next seat, that that next seat where I'm gonna make hopefully like the vast majority of the money for my entire career, and I'm hoping I'm there for 15 years mm-hmm. and become a senior partner or whatever. Like this is my career, right? Yeah. Everything up to this from trading, you know, has you know. One of the things I was going to mention is the benefits of flexibility and being able to pivot to other things, right? So pivoting from trading to business school to banking to a couple different firms, all leading up to this next job. Uh, I thought the best place to do that from would be Goldman versus the firm that I was working at previously.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're that, looking at the path, you're looking at the path of other people who've done it before, it makes sense.
1: Yeah, and th- and that makes the the cost of switching. Um, you know, that's that would what got me past the cost of switching, which was giving up, you know, a pretty, pretty, um, easy path here. up. Yeah.
0: So, or yeah, easy, in terms of easy path up all the way to MD. Easy
1: path up yep. and, and, you know, being rated well every year and having a good, you know, network in terms of supporters throughout the firm at my old firm and going into Goldman, which, you know, is known to be a little bureaucratic and a little bit, um, mm-hmm. uh, more competitive than other places, put it that way.
0: Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So before we call it, anything else you'd like to share for the younger listeners? I mean, your, your path has been interesting, you know, you know, going to banking and making that transition. But
1: Yeah. You know, I would like to reiterate, um, being flexible, being open to opportunities. And just because you didn't go to a school that is like a core recruiting school, or just because you didn't start in your first job at, you know, Goldman or J or JP or Morgan Stanley, like, After a while, like people care less about where you went to school. They care less about where did you start your career. It's you're in a room with someone and you know, you know, your industry, you know, you can talk knowledgeably about the deals you've worked on. You can talk knowledgeably about the the clients and the sector that you cover. You can talk knowledgeably about what's going on in the economy and that industry. And after a while that trumps everything. So, you know, when I was at this uh, European bank, um, like we would hire people from Ivy League schools, we would hire people from you know Midwestern state schools. We'd hire people from all over, and just based on you know senior people and they could get you know people in there for interviewing. And to tell you the truth, our best analysts, when I was a staffer, three years in a row when I was there, were probably from schools that you would never assume would even have anyone going into banking in New York, from Midwestern big-time schools like and not like Michigan like other ones um
0: <laughs> like other no name like
1: really and those guys target. Yeah. yeah and those guys like killed it and our worst analyst was from Princeton so yeah. like once you get in like you need to do the job a and b like people stop caring about all that stuff and i know when you're in school you get caught up with it and you get caught up with the you know oh, i need to go to the best firm on need like the 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 the, the goal should be I need to get a seat in banking because I want to do banking and learn, which you're, you can do at a lot of different places. And then if you want to switch to a better firm, you go into that interview with the, the other firm, right, or the higher tier or the bulge racket. And you say, you know what, we only did one lead M&A deal, but here's what I did with it. I built the whole merger model. I did the sim. You know, I kept, I ran the whole diligence process. I kept the buyer list. I you know, X, Y, and Z, talk about it for 45 minutes, know all the nuts and bolts of it, and you'll just blow someone's socks off and, you know, have an offer before you even know it. Yeah. Um, but that's different than saying, oh, I'm not going to get a job at Goldman or JP or Morgan Stanley, and oh, I shouldn't even do 95. Um Yeah.
0: There's a lot of that on the, on the forums. Unfortunately, I try to.
1: Well, that's, that's why I, brought, that's why I brought it up. And a lot no, it's of. It's important. There- yeah, a lot of very, you know, not, not, you know, I've been moderately successful, you know, making my way kind of along in banking, but, you know, I work with a lot of people who, you know, founders of private equity firms and hedge funds who, you know, the path wasn't as they expected, you know, maybe they tried to launch their firm and struck out the first time around, or maybe they were in a corporate and they thought that they had a startup that was hugely valued and it blew up and then they had to go pivot to something else. But, you know, the there are benefits of being versatile and flexible as you move throughout your career and you never know how things are going to work out. Um, but you know, every experience ends up being valuable. And as long as you're dedicated, willing to do the work, willing to learn, um, things tend to work out more often than not. And people, people recognize that, you know, you know, we hired lots of analysts and associates laterally when I was at the the other bulge bracket and now Goldman from firms that you would never expect, you know, small regional shops, middle market boutiques, stuff like that. Just because someone comes in and you can just tell they can do the work and it's no different. Just the numbers are bigger.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to share your, your story and your knowledge with all of us. No problem. And thanks to you, my listeners at wall street oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.